1: righty then, let's get to it. Today we're talking about the hacking of the American mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. And that actually is the name of a book authored by my first guest, Dr. Robert Lustig, who is a professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Lustig has become a leading public health authority on the impact sugar has on fueling the diabetes, obesity, and metabolic syndrome epidemics and on addressing changes in the food environment to reverse these chronic diseases. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist with basic and clinical training relative to hypothalamic development, anatomy, and function. Prior to coming to San Francisco in 2001, he worked at St. Jude's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, what a fabulous place. Welcome, Rob Lustig.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. Very nice introduction.
1: Oh, well, it is a pleasure to have you because this is an this is an important topic you know we've heard our parents tell us or our mothers tell us when we were kids. you know you are what you eat put put all that junk in your body, and that's not good and there's well, truth to it
2: well, actually, I would uh, rephrase that you are what you do with what you eat
1: ah all right
2: and what we've right. <laughs> learned is that certain uh foodstuffs are metabolized differently from other foodstuffs, and there are very specific mechanisms by which certain foodstuffs lead to all of these chronic diseases that we now see today, type two diabetes, hypertension, lipid problems, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia. These are all diseases within this realm we call metabolic syndrome. And it turns out that we now understand how metabolic syndrome occurs and why children are getting diseases of adults diseases of alcohol and diseases they've never seen before and it's i can sum it up in one word and you already mentioned it sugar
1: yeah sugar 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 wow and and we are addicted our culture is addicted to sugar we love it
2: i'm afraid that's true uh we do love it in fact every vertebrate on the planet loves it uh the um a uh, taste receptor for sugar is conserved across all species, um, and uh, yeah, uh, sugar had an evolutionary uh, ad- uh, advantage because what it told our ancestors was that any given foodstuff they found in nature was at least acutely safe to eat because there are no foods that are sweet and poisonous. Ah.
1: Oh. Very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about metabolic syndrome, and 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 just to ask you to define it a little bit more clearly for the layperson, because okay. some of our listeners might not understand what that means and and what we can do about it. What power we have to actually impact or control or prevent it?
2: Sure. In order to explain metabolic syndrome, first I have to um, uh, debunk a notion that is prevalent throughout our society, and that is that. Obesity is the cause of all of these diseases that I mentioned. And that is actually not true, and I'll explain why. Turns out 20% of the overweight population are metabolically healthy. They don't get type 2 diabetes, they don't get hypertension, they don't get liver problems, they don't get cancer, they don't get uh, dementia. They will live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They're just fat. We have a name for these people. We study them. They're called MHOs, metabolically healthy obese. They are not contributing to our healthcare crisis and they are taking it on the, on the, uh, on the, um, you know, they're taking on the chin because uh, everyone assumes they've got a problem because they're overweight. Conversely, 40% 40% of the normal weight population have the exact same diseases as do the obese, they're just not fat. They get all those same diseases. And it turns out when you do the math, there are actually more thin sick people in America than there are fat sick people. So what this tells us is that obesity and these diseases are dissociable. In, turn, in fact, obesity is just a marker for the metabolic problem. So what is that metabolic problem? What is going on that leads to these diseases in both obese and normal weight people? And the answer is flooding your liver with fat. So the question is, where did that fat come from? Everybody assumed, well, dietary fat makes you fat. Well, the research over the last five years has shown that is absolutely not true that is a terrible mistake it is a mistake that's being promulgated by the food industry but it is not true in fact sugar gets turned into liver fat and it is that liver fat made from sugar that is driving all of these metabolic diseases and thin people eat sugar too so when your fat liver gets fat your pancreas can't make enough insulin to make the liver do its job That raises insulin levels all over the body and causes the um, coronary uh, uh, musculature to hypertrophy to uh, make it more likely you will have a heart attack. It drives cancer growth. It drives changes in the brain that lead to Alzheimer's disease, and it drives blood pressure up for hypertension, and ultimately the pancreas burns out, and you end up with type 2 diabetes. So... Mm -hmm. Getting rid of the liver fat turns out to be the important phenomenon, and that's what we focus on in our clinic, and that's why our patients turn around.
1: And talk a little bit about the process, because the elimination of sugar, um, to some listening, might sound very, very harsh.
2: Well, we as human beings used to only get sugar about one month a year. It was called harvest time. And what would happen is we would lay down extra fat in our liver and extra uh, fat in our fat cells too. And then what would happen after harvest time? Winter. And so we would have four months of famine. And so that extra fat that we laid down when sugar was plentiful was actually adaptive. So we, we called this seasonal insulin resistance. And this actually kept the species alive for millennia. Unfortunately, now we have 24-7, 365 access to sugar. It's in all of our food, whether we like it or not. It's been placed there by the food industry for its purposes, not for yours. You can't get away from it. And so we now have 24-7, 365 liver fat and chronic metabolic disease all over the world. So this is a societal health Problem, not a personal responsibility problem, and it is my job to try to explain it to the public and also <laughs> explain it to the food industry as to why they are hurting their own customers.
1: Mm. And and to rebound from these conditions, I'm assuming. And correct me if I'm wrong. And please elaborate. Um, that really, what we're what we need to do is is. Per- prepare foods for ourselves, unprocessed foods, fresh foods, um, non-GMO foods that um, will help us thrive. But you also mentioned the combination of these foods.
2: Right. So uh, you, you threw two uh, ideas into one uh, comment. So let me let me unpack that for a minute.
1: Thank you. All
2: right. So real food is what I'm all about. And the reason real food matters is because real food is low sugar, high fiber. Processed food is the exact opposite. It's high sugar, low fiber. High sugar for palatability, low fiber for shelf life. Now, the sugar makes liver fat. Why is the fiber important? Well, it turns out the fiber keeps you from absorbing the food in the intestine and renders that food available to the bacteria in your gut. So when you consume fiber, you're actually feeding your bacteria, which is a good thing to do, because if they get it, that means you didn't. So even though you ate it, you didn't get it. so fiber containing food has all sorts of advantages plus all the micronutrients are found in the fiber fraction. so when you defibertize food, whether it be fruit juice, whether it be um, uh, you know uh, vegetables of various sorts or don't eat them in any case, um, you are actually missing out on micronutrients and other foodstuffs, minerals that are absolutely essential to life. So real food is the answer. Processed food is the danger. Now, you also threw GMO in there. Mm. And I am not ready at this point to start talking about GMOs because we don't have the data yet. Um, No one has yet shown that GMOs are dangerous. Am I worried about it? Sure. Uh, Do I think we should label? Absolutely. Because if it turns out that GMOs are a problem, the only way we're going to be able to figure it out is to have gone backwards and figure out who ate what. And the only way to do that is to know where it was. So I am for labeling. But at this point in time, I cannot in good conscience, based on the science alone, say that GMOs are a problem.
1: We are going to need to go to a break in a minute. And before we do, I want to mention one thing about the relationship of real food to personal well-being. We know that it's good for our health from what you described, but the idea of making real food and all the other social implications that that includes. And what I mean by that is the preparation of the food, the communing around the food, the social connectivity and those elements. Um, and that's where the conversation leads to, to happiness. I would love to explore that with you when we come absolute, back. Absolutely. Uh, that's what the really, whole new book is about. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Essentially, <laughs> the book, The Hacking of the American Mind, The Science Behind the Corporate Takeover of Our Bodies and Our Brains, really is a prescription or an exploration of, of the antidote, you know, it, it, and, and I want to send listeners over to your website, www.robertlustig.com on Twitter. You can connect with Dr. Rob Lustig at Robert Lustig MD and on Facebook, Dr. Robert Lustig. Before we dash off to that break, I just want to um, ask you one thing about happiness and food, and then we'll go to the break. Sure. I want to know why food makes us so happy. <laughs> uh, it doesn't.
2: It doesn't make you happy. It, make, it gives you pleasure is what it gives you. Okay? There's an area of the brain called the reward center and food, pal- palatable food, um, high energy density food in particular, um, drives a reward pathway that has a neurotransmitter in it that you've heard of. It's called dopamine. Dopamine.
1: And
2: (laughs) dopamine is a double-edged sword, as we will talk about uh, after the break. Um, A little is good and a lot is not, like so many things in life. And the problem is that chronic overstimulation of dopamine neurons, which happens from constant seeking of reward and pleasure, actually end up causing neuronal brain cell death and lead you to addiction.
1: Oh, I want to I want to talk about this when we get back. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to talk about creativity and how making things can make you a happier and healthier person. Today's sponsor, Craftsy, is the digital destination devoted entirely to makers. More than 13 million enthusiasts from artists to quilters and beyond make Craftsy their home for binge-worthy on-demand content and access to the world's top experts and curated supplies, all served up in a fun-loving creative community. This year, resolve to live a more creative life. Sign up for your seven-day free trial at craftsy.com happiness. Once again, it's seven days of free craftsy at craftsy.com happiness. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise.
0: We know that life can be tough, and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the hacking of the American mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains with Dr. Robert Lustig, who is a professor of pediatric endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He's the author of this new book, and we're talking about Metabolic syndrome and how sugar is really deleterious to our health on so many levels. So, Rob, prior to the break, um, we were talking about neuronal cell death and basically brain cells dying. Talk about how food, specifically um, sugar, contributes to this. Well, contributes to the release of excessive dopamine.
2: So here's here's what you need to know. Um, there are two neurotransmitters that I won't say control all of our emotions, but they certainly control two very important, positive emotions, pleasure and happiness. And the problem is that people often get pleasure and happiness mixed up. In fact, you got them mixed up just a few minutes ago. I did. Uh, (laughs) um, And understanding the difference between these two uh, positive emotions is absolutely essential to actually being able to get happiness. So, and since your whole uh, 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 you know blog is called uh, um, Harvesting Happiness, the whole uh, podcast is called Harvesting Happiness. We ought to actually define what I mean, at least, by happiness, and hopefully you do too. So let's talk about the seven differences between pleasure and happiness, and then we can unpack the dopamine story. So, seven differences. Number one, pleasure is short-lived; happiness is long-lived. Two pleasure is visceral. You feel it in your body. Happiness is ethereal. You feel it above the neck. Number three, pleasure is taking. Happiness is giving. Four, pleasure is achieved alone. Happiness is usually achieved in social groups. Five, pleasure can be achieved with the substances. Happiness cannot be achieved with substances. Six, pleasure in the extreme, whether it be happiness or substances. So it can be uh, substances like uh, 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 cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, or it could be behaviors such as uh, shopping, video games, social media, um, uh, porn, uh, all in the extreme lead to addiction. Whereas there's no such thing as being addicted to too much happiness. And finally, number seven, pleasure is dopamine and happiness is serotonin. So two different biochemicals, two different areas of the brain, two different sets of receptors, two different regulatory pathways. So you say to me, like, who cares? So what? They both feel good. Leave me alone. Well, it actually matters a lot.
1: It does matter a lot.
2: (laughs) It does matter a lot. And the reason it matters is scientific, not just, you know, philosophical. The reason it matters is because dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It excites the next neuron. So neurons like to be excited because that's why they have receptors in the first place, but they like to be tickled, not bludgeoned. Chronic overstimulation of neurons leads to neuronal cell death. So neurons are trying to protect themselves. So they have a plan B. They have a plan. self-defense mechanism built in. What they do is they down-regulate the receptor for whatever it is that's stimulating. In the case of dopamine, it would be the dopamine receptor. So what happens in human terms, something your uh, uh, audience can relate to. You get a hit, you get a rush and the receptors go down. Next time you need a bigger hit to get the same rush because there are fewer receptors and the receptors go down. And then you get a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. Serotonin, however, does not downregulate its own receptor because it's an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It doesn't have to downregulate it because it puts the next neuron to rest, not excites it. So you can't overdose on too much happiness. But there is one thing that down regulates that serotonin, and that is dopamine. So in one sentence, one concept, the more pleasure you seek, the more unhappy you get.
1: Yes, I think that the the pursuit of of happiness is an oxymoron. The more you go looking, the harder it is to find. And and it's usually the the byproduct of something else anyway. Indeed.
2: Eric Hoffer, famous philosopher of the previous generation, said that uh, the search for happiness is the chief source of unhappiness.
1: Agreed. Agreed. And in your book, you write about contentment as being the bluebird of happiness. And I think this is super important.
2: Indeed. So when we talk about contentment, we are talking about what Aristotle termed eudaimonia. Yes. And um, an easy way to explain uh, the difference between pleasure and happiness is this this paradigm. Pleasure is this feels good. I want more. And happiness is this feels good. I don't want or need anymore. That's the difference. And the point is that eudaimonia, the concept that you have enough, that you are content with what you have, that you don't need to be searching for anymore is specifically serotonin driven. Problem is serotonin is hard to come by. It's uh t- precursor tryptophan uh, which is an amino acid is the rarest amino acid in nature it's actually relatively hard to come by it's found in eggs and some poultry and some fish um, those are not usually the uh, uh ma- major markers of fast food are they and yeah. uh, uh, for for good reason you know they go rancid so the fact is that eating Processed food is going to deplete your source of tryptophan, making it much harder to get that serotonin in the first place. Um, So eating right and eating real food is really what it's all about in terms of being able to boost your serotonin. But there are many other things that boost your serotonin also, and they're all outlined and delineated in the book. Uh, I call them the four C's. So the first C, connect and that does not mean Facebook. In order to connect- (laughs) so true. In order order to connect, you have to establish a direct eye-to-eye, person-to-person, face-to-face connection. And there's a reason for that. Because you have a set of mirror neurons in the back of your head that are on in real time, reading the facial expressions and emotions of the person you're talking to. And you end up adopting some of those emotions yourself. This is a process we ra- normally call empathy. And it turns out that empathy is a specific driver of serotonin. Problem is you can't have empathy with anonymous. Doesn't work. Right, <laughs> and, right, and right. Emojis do, we- do not convey empathy. Um, it, in fact, the more people use Facebook, the more depressed they get. Uh, and we now have the time lag analysis to demonstrate that it doesn't matter where you start. Two weeks of Facebook makes you more miserable. So number two, contribute. And that does not mean to your IRA. It has to be outside of yourself. It has to be to your family or your friends or to the world at large. Of course, the big question everyone always asks is, well, can work satisfy its contribution? And the answer is yes, can, with two provisos. You have to see how your work is benefiting others. And your boss has to be able to see it, too. If both are satisfied, you can derive contentment and contribution from your work. But a lot of people can't. And so they need other menu, uh, venues for that. So altruism, philanthropy, volunteerism, joining clubs, etc., all can contribute. Uh, number three, cope. And In cope, I mean three things. Sleep, mindfulness, exercise. So none of us get any sleep anymore. And 23% of people are insomniacs. Number two, uh, mindfulness. We think multitasking is to be prized. Turns out only 2.5% of the population can actually do it. The rest of us, it's smoke and mirrors. We're serially unitasking, and every time we switch tasks, we get a cortisol rush, which actually lowers our serotonin receptors and makes us even more unhappy. And then the last one we've talked about, cook. And cook means real food, in your kitchen instead of going out to eat, because when you go to a restaurant, you have abdicated your responsibility for what's in that food to someone else who really doesn't care whether you're happy or not. So those are the four. Connect, contribute, cook, they are all things your mother told you, but you forgot because you were texting while drinking a Coca-Cola.
1: And doing your homework.
2: And, well, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Indeed. The the point is the the food industry, the cell phone industry, the technology industry uh, have all conflated this concept of pleasure with happiness because they say to you, you're unhappy, buy this product, you will be happy and you buy it and you end up more unhappy and you're not going to get happy until you actually know what happiness is.
1: Yeah. I, I, I agree. And, and the last item you mentioned about cooking for yourself and your family and your friends, I really believe also, um, takes into account to into account the prior three, you know, that when we commune with others around the table, when we prepare the food together, we engage in heartfelt conversation. We, we, we do what we're supposed to do as humans, which is to lean into one another. We need each other.
2: That's right. I, I, I couldn't agree more. The family meal is the single best way to up your serotonin and tamp down your dopamine and become part of your social network. And that is truly social. It's the single best thing you can do for yourself.
1: We are talking about the hacking of the American mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains with author Dr. Robert Lustig. Thank you, Rob, for being with us. To learn more, please visit www.robertlustig.com. On Twitter, you can connect with Rob at Robert Lustig, MD. And on Facebook, that page is Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Robert Lustig, thanks for being with us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio.
0: Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, The glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, it's free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about what's under the human hood, our beautiful brains. My next guest is a most interesting man. I'm so looking forward to this interview. Mm -hmm. Moran Cerf is a professor of neuroscience and business at the Kellogg School of Management. Additionally, he is the Alfred P. Sloan Screenwriting Professor at the American Film Institute. Prior to his academic career, Professor surfed work as a hacker for nearly a decade, breaking into leading financial and government institutes to test and improve their security. His hacking background has led him to pursue non-traditional ways to investigate the brain, using methods and techniques that benefit from heavy computational skills and novel research tools. Welcome, Moran Surf. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm happy this, to be here. Uh, this is this is uh, this is a pleasure. I uh, was watching several of your TED your TED Talks, and I had noted over the years the speed at which you speak has slowed down significantly, for which I'm grateful.
3: <laughs> yeah, I recommend your audience to press whatever button on the radio allows them to double, d- double slow it, and then it might seem like we're talking on a regular speed.
1: Exactly. Um, right now, the, the, your work is focusing on neuroscience in business. Talk a little bit about how, how that combination works
3: so, what happened in the last twenty years uh, is that a lot of uh, psychologists went into the world of economics and explained a lot of the biases people have in ways that the old models didn't explain. Uh, why do people buy things that uh, you know appear as uh, six ninety nine, thinking it's six rather than seven? Why do people uh, buy things that they don't want? Why do you set the alarm at midnight to 6 a.m. thinking you're going to wake up and be very alert in the morning and then you press snooze many times? And, And basically, this started explaining how we behave in ways that aren't aligned with what we want. But they got to a place where they could predict the irrational behaviors, but not change it. And that's when they called neuroscientists in the last couple of years to say, OK, it's not enough to just explain that people have biases and they buy stuff they don't want or do things they don't want. We need to change that. And that's where me and my colleagues are starting to help in explaining why you do what you do.
1: and And how to change it. Right. Yes. How- so so talk a little bit about your prior career because i think this mm. this sort of uh, this dovetails and weaves weaves a, a very compelling story you were a hacker right for a living you sat at your computer and you 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 broke in literally to institutions exactly. as, seeking <laughs> seeking weaknesses in their systems
3: the idea behind that was that uh, this is now be- beginning of the internet really really 20 years ago when a lot of companies started to build their online services. So banks, uh, Amazon started, uh, many, many things that we know now for and take for granted just began. And they knew how to build a website, but they didn't really know how to secure the website. And mostly their flaws were intuitive flaws. So let's say, think about Amazon. They have a login page where you have to put your username and your password. But the question was, did the programmer who built Amazon think about the possibility of someone putting a password that's a million characters long. And if she or he didn't plan for that, then when you try that, the website's gonna crash. So our job was to try that, try to break into banks, try to break into Amazon-like websites, try to steal content and then come back to them and say, hey, here's the flaw in your website that allows hackers to get in and destroy things or steal money or change someone's records. And uh, here's how to solve that. And going forward, we can help you do a better job in securing yourself. And this job called penetration testing became what now we know as hackers working as white hat hackers, as in helping companies save themselves.
1: <laughs> I, I like the, the qualification, the, the white hat hacker. Yeah. And and essentially what you're doing now is hacking into our brains.
3: Yes. What, what happened was that they, after doing the hacking thing for a number of years, With the help of a lot of people, I started recognizing that there's a similarity between looking at computers and looking at the brain. Uh, Both are black boxes, both are super complicated, you don't really see the inside, you just see what goes in and what comes out. Uh, You need to use statistics and mathematics and computer science to figure out what's going on. A lot of similarities there that made me see that uh, if you want to understand the world, you might as well go after the bigger questions and one of the biggest ones in the world is how we become us and that's in your brain
1: how we become us what what a big question i think people have been trying to answer that for thousands of years (laughs) now
3: indeed and we're fortunately getting better in the last say decade but we're unfortunate not getting as close as we want to the answers yet
1: so, when we talk about the application of neuroscience in business, um, we really have to take into account the soft side of humanity right what what it inspires and drives our decisions to 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 buy something or to become a neuroscientist versus a psychologist or a welder or a, a farmer. Talk a little bit about this decision making process and some of your theories and experiments um, that teach us that maybe decision-making can be influenced by, I want to say, the computer chip (laughs) (laughs) installed in the brain. So
3: I think that one of the interesting learnings from the last decade is that a lot of times what our brain mostly spends time doing is explaining after the fact why we did what we did. And we think that we actually think about the options and choose. Turns out that the choice usually happens under the hood without us really knowing why we did it it's based on a lot of things that are not accessible to us. And then what our brain mostly spends time doing is explaining after the fact why this aligns with our reality. So think of yourself in a supermarket and you have two items, uh, Crest and Colgate, two toothpaste, and you have to choose And you sit there and you say, this time I'm going to make a rational choice. I'm going to only look at attributes I care about. And you say, this one is minty tasting, and this one has a nicer package, and this one is a little bit bigger, and this one is a little bit cheaper. And you kind of make a table in your mind of pros and cons for each of them, and then you make a choice. What we learned is that you totally missed big time on what actually happened in your brain. Because the things that you included in your choice are only a small, small set of the many, many things that were in your brain, And mostly you're going to explain it after the fact to the point that if I actually come afterwards and change your choice without you knowing, so you chose Colgate, I put Crest in your basket, you rarely will notice that and you will buy whatever is there and you're going to come up with a story that explains why whatever you got is what you always wanted. And that's how interesting the brain is in the sense that it just goes in the future into the past and tries to explain it rather than actually understanding it.
1: So it's what you're saying that we are ruled by impulsivity and post-rationalization?
3: So I think that uh, impulsivity is a component of how you decide. Uh, irrational choices are a component. Uh, the environment, the temperature in the room has an influence on your choice and we don't really think that that it's the case, but it is. Uh, the sounds that you heard before, there are all kinds of studies on something that uh, people uh, know as implicit egotism, which is basically uh, things that happen outside that affect your choice without you noticing them because they sound like your name or they smell like smells that you like and they actually drive you to a choice that you never would explain was a driver. So the idea is that there's a lot more things. There are a lot more things out there that influence your choices and you never become aware of those things. You just think that the things you could think about are the choice.
1: And what we're talking about also post-rationalizing as to why we think we made those choices.
3: Absolutely. So I'll give you an example. Um, we know, for instance, that if you go to a supermarket and you want to buy wine, and let's say you don't know much about wine, there's a shelf full of wines and there's sorted from the cheapest one to the most expensive one. Most people look at the shelf and they say, okay, on the left, there's a $5 wine. That's, I guess, the cheapest one. I don't wanna buy the cheapest one, so I'm not gonna buy that. On the right, there's the expensive one. There go from 20 to 50. I don't wanna spend too much, so I'm gonna go for the middle one and buy the $10 wine. Now, we didn't really know the $10 wine is what you wanna buy, but you just calibrated your scale because you saw 50 and 20 and five, and you kind of align to the center. If the shop owner, the store owner, wants to make you uh, buy expensive one, you would just put $100 wine and $200 wine on the right, and then you're going to calibrate the scale differently, and you're now going to buy the 20 and the 50 because you'd see that the scale is different. Now, you would never say, I bought the $20 wine because I saw that there was 5 and there was 100 and I want to buy something in the middle. You would just think that this makes sense. And you would come up with a complicated story to why this is the case, and never will know that what influenced you were things outside your rational thinking.
1: And then there's those of us that are going for the label, you know, that it's the visuals, which it really plays into marketing and how neuroscience affects the way we spend based upon what we see.
3: Absolutely, and we never would argue that this was the case. That the important thing is that uh, where psychology stops and neuroscience comes is where you ask people to explain their choices, and they always come up with an answer, and you always know right away that their answer is incomplete. They're missing some things in your brain that that influence their choices, but they didn't know about.
1: What about the role emotion plays in the decision making process? Right. So you're 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 in the wine aisle. Let's stay in the wine aisle. You know, on the left, Hmm. you've got the you know, the five dollar wine on the right. You've got the 50 or 100 dollar wine. You decide in the middle. Now, what are the other things that predict what we're going to gravitate to?
3: So first of all, the emotional state you're at right now, sad, happy, angry, would definitely shift your scale. And each person has a different levels by which they're going to be shifted, but this is one thing. Then we also know uh, that just having made a choice, just holding a bubble immediately makes you feel better. So just deciding is something that our brain likes. The brain doesn't like being in a state of inconsistent, uh, multiple choices. So just having chosen something already increases your happiness a little bit. You might then start playing into Did I make the right choice, regret, and so on? But having made a choice immediately shows a spike in happiness. So emotions are connected even to the choice itself, to making one. And then there's also a lot of components to how the experience of something changes your choice going forward. So then you taste the wine, and it tastes good to you, we know that it will affect the next time you're going to make a choice and the emotions you are going to fill with that. So emotions really are a key ingredient. And the interesting thing is that now neuroscience can actually tap into those. We can actually look at your brain when you make a choice and see which emotions drove the choice, what changed afterwards, and actually explain to you your character in a way that aligns with what happens inside your hood without you knowing anything about it.
1: We are going to choose to take a break before we're taken to one for, for us without, without our consent. To learn more, please visit MoranSurf.com. I'm going to let you give the handles for Twitter and Facebook because my brain removing the vowels is it's problematic. So
3: Just Think of the word Twitter.com and take the vowels out. So it's T-W-T-R-D-T-C-M or Facebook.com without the vowels or almost everything in my life is the same thing without the vowels.
1: So, those vowel less handles is where you'll find Moran Surf. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and that's a promise.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. find yourself saying things like I'll be happy when or I'll be happy if does the finish line for happiness keep moving does the bar keep getting higher what's getting in the way of your happiness right now too much going on working too much not working enough having too many responsibilities not having enough money enough time enough space the list goes on and on It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are with Moran Cerf, who is a professor of neuroscience and business at the Kellogg School of Management. And I urge our listeners to visit his um, videos online because they are fascinating. We're talking about our brains, what lives under the human hood, how we make decisions, how neuroscience impacts um, business and impacts marketing, the way we make our decisions, the way we buy things and the way we live our lives. So Moran, um, I want to talk a little bit about the experiments uh, or, the, the, the you, or the research that you have been doing with patients who are in hospital having brain testing where the, where the skull is opened up and um, doctors are trying to fig- figure out what's wrong and you're piggybacking with your own testing.
3: Yes. So, I mean, we said that neuroscientists are interested in looking at the brain. However, most neuroscientists look at the brain from the outside. So they look at uh, the brain by using all kinds of imaging tools. And that gives you some access to what the brain is doing, but not really directly looking at the brain. What we do is something that's pretty remarkable. We partner with neurosurgeons who have patients come uh, to take our uh, procedure that is pretty invasive, where the surgeon essentially opens their brain and puts electrodes inside their head to eavesdrop on the activity of individual cells. So tiny, tiny brain cells that code the person's disorder. So if it's epilepsy, the neurosurgeon puts electrodes in the brain uh, so the patient can sit there awake and wait to have a seizure and then when they have a seizure can actually figure out where the seizure began by having those electrodes inside the brain And then you can resect or change or do something that helps the patient actually be fixed That's the clinical part. What I do is I piggyback on that and I say if we already have a human being who is awake with open head and electrodes inside their brain, listening to the brain and waiting for them to have a seizure, we can also ask them questions and talk to them about their feelings and emotion and decision and see how the brain codes those. So what we do is we essentially talk to the patient about whether they're going to buy Colgate or Crest But what we see is how their brain codes the two items, how their brain actually makes the decision, which voices come to life when you have internal conversation, and ultimately how you decide. That's remarkable and very unique. No one else can do something like that with humans.
1: And it's incredible what you've discovered. I mean, in one of the talks I was watching... Um, there is a woman who is um, seeing several images over the course of uh, a few minutes, and her brain absolutely lights up at um, watching The Simpsons. And what, that, <laughs> what this translates to in terms of um, seeing it uh, read on a test. Talk a little bit about that and the noise when that is translated into sound.
3: So essentially, this is what a thought looks like inside the brain. When you think of the Simpson or of your mom or dad or Eiffel Tower, the Big Ben in London, the thought exists somewhere in your brain and it's coded by cells lighting up and those cells actually spark in activity. We call those firing cells and they start speaking to each other and telling them, oh my God, I'm thinking about the Simpson right now or about the Big Ben in London. Now, if we have electrodes next to those cells listening, we can actually hear the moment these cells light up and start telling the other parts of the brain, the Simpson is on the screen right now. And then we can see what you're thinking about. So if we find enough of those cells in the morning, we can in the evening have you just think inside your head about the Simpsons, Marilyn Monroe, the Eiffel Tower, and we just don't ask any question, but looking at the cells. And when we see the cell light up, you know that in your mind right now are the Simpsons.
1: And the cells are lighting up because in this case, the woman was recalling a positive memory or something that pleased her. So right. she had recognition, therefore you see a spike. Exactly. So I think this is really important and, and useful because when we're dealing with people who are depressed or anxious, who have trauma, conversely, it's happening for a negative event.
3: Exactly right. So what, what's interesting is that once we find those cells in your brain, once we find the memory of, say, the Simpson in your head, that's it. We know how to identify the memory. And in your brain, you also have memories of bad experiences, of things that you didn't enjoy, of things that you want to change. And what we learned in the last couple of years is that actually memories do change. We can inject new information into memories and change them. And this is how we heal from bad experiences. And now because we have electrodes listening to those cells that code your emotions, we can assess the process. So we can actually have you go to a therapist and see step by step how the memories change. We can see what works and what doesn't work. We can actually teach you how to control your emotions and have you learn how to regulate them. So you won't stay in the same state of depression by teaching you how to manipulate those cells using your own systems. So it actually is a way to quantify and help people get better this time with a specific way to assess the performance.
1: To me, this is fantastic. You know, I work with people who are suffering uh, much of the time and to be able to give them hope that they can replace the tapes, the old tapes with new ones, but not just from a cognitive behavioral perspective, but also how we're reprogramming the mind with memory. So the recollection will be of a more positive experience.
3: Absolutely. I guess one of the learning that came not from our work, but from other people's work in the last 10 years was that memories aren't fixed that when you open a memory and you tell the story that's in your memory, you actually open it also for changes. And any information that you include at that moment will be saved in the memory for later use. So if you tell the story of the, say, bed breakup every day, every day you also change it a little bit. So on day seven, it will be different than it was on day one, two, and three. And this means that we can change our memories, it will change our experiences, and we can actually get better. So if you talk about things that were bad, over time, you will introduce changes that will help you get better.
1: Which is in prolonged exposure therapy, um, you're having the client or the patient continue to tell the story over and over and over again. So the event that was supercharged or traumatic then turns into reportage of what happened without any emotional charge.
3: Exactly. We call this remembering without reliving. So you can still code the entire experience, but you don't go through the same experience of living it again and again.
1: But there's nothing like replacing a bad memory with a good one. So in other words, when you uh, have had a lot of trauma in your life, to be able to create new positive memories and emotion and recall those with, more, with greater frequency than the old, is also another way of, of healing.
3: So I think that there is now in, in psychology, a variety of people who talk about different techniques. And I think that the outcome is that we learn that all of them are partially true and incomplete. One of them has to do with reframing, We essentially try to tell a story that takes the same experience and makes it a positive one. It's sometimes really hard, and some people are very, very good at that, and those people are actually able to take a memory and shift it 180 degrees and make it into a positive one by telling a bigger story. Now, ultimately, we know that the brain is really good in telling stories, in coming up with explanations to what we do. And historically, we know that most people that are getting better and that have healthy way of handling... Handling bad things are doing that. So you take a person who had a really bad experience. Wait long enough, he might be able to tell a story where he says, "Yes, I was fired from my job, but this was the thing that allowed me to meet my wife and have a happy life." And and it's it's we call it a synthesizing happiness. You actually have to build the happiness mechanically, but it's a very very powerful way of dealing things. And if you can do that, and if you're able to always find the positive, the glass half full and how the bad experiences help you get better, you will do the same job that we do with trauma, which is reframing the memories.
1: Or post-traumatic growth. I mean, yes. the, from from post traumatic stress to post traumatic growth, right? The trend, the trans, uh, transformance and transcendence of those events into something more positive. Let's let's switch hats for a second and go back to using neuroscience to make business predictions. Because I'm fascinated about how uh, the impact of this on mm. the economy, for example.
3: So I think that where where it becomes practical these days is that a lot of companies are coming to us and basically saying a neuroscientist, help us replace old methods of uh, asking c- questions by looking at the brain. So for instance, many companies, especially companies in the U.S. that sell products used to create a product and then bring uh, a set of 50 people to the room, to what we call a focus group, show them the product and ask them questions. And what we know is that those moments are not reliable. People tend to answer questions in groups in a similar fashion, people tend to uh, change their mind based on what they think the experimenter wants them to say. If you ask them questions about things that they are embarrassed by, people tend to not answer co- incorrectly or truthfully. So a lot of marketing experts were kind of you know, unimpressed by focus groups, but didn't know what to do other than ask customers. Uh, and what we have right now is a tool that allows you to look at the brains of the customers when they answer questions and while they answer their questions and see what goes on inside their head. So you ask them, did you like this uh, uh, mobile app? And they say, uh, I don't know, on a scale up to 10, I liked it as seven. You can see if this seven was actually, yes, it's a seven, or I was debating between five and nine, and I guess I chose a seven, and yeah, circling a seven. So now you can actually see the seven that was confident versus the seven that was an average of two different things that we weren't sure about, and say, okay, let's take this answer differently and, and use it differently. And this is the power of neuroscience. We can now have people answer questions, look at the brain, want the answer. We can have them watch movies. This is a lot of what we do right now. We, we work with Hollywood but a movie assessment. So we have people come and watch movies before they're out and help the director decide how to cut the film, if she should fall in love with the vampire or the wolf. Finally, you can have the answer by having the audience look and decide with you. (laughs) (laughs) We can have people look at trailers for movies and see which trailers are gonna be remembered because trailers usually are showing movies that are gonna come out six months later. So now we can see what is going to be remembered in those two minutes uh, of a kind of preview of a film. We can uh, look at commercials on TV, uh, ones that, you know, go before the Super Bowl that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars and help people decide how to make them so they will be most memorable. We worked a year ago with uh, both political parties on trying to help them actually craft speeches by the candidates that will be more memorable and powerful because we can actually look at what people say and understand what will be remembered, what will be emotional, what will be impactful, what will be maybe mind changing or, or vote changing. So all of these are tools that companies and candidates and people use to use neuroscience and help them kind of make decisions differently.
1: Wow. To learn more about Moran Cerf's work and how science is impacting emotion, I mean, I think it's the other way around in the work that you're doing. You know, you're, cra- you're, cra- you're crafting the movies of our lives, literally and figuratively, with the use of neuroscience. So if we can do it for a movie, I guess we can do it for an election, right?
3: We say it's not research, it's me search. You look at the things you care about and
1: you try to help them get better. Me search. I like you. you know what you got to make a t-shirt. You know, I'm doing <laughs> me search. I'm me searching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm me searching for meaning. Anyway, MoranSurf.com, you've been a delight. On Twitter, I'm going to try and give these handles properly. It's Twitter.com, remove the vowels. Once again, to connect with Moransurf. please visit him on Twitter at uh, Twitter.com, take out the vowels, and you'll find him. On Facebook, it's the same thing, Facebook.com, without the vowels, that's F-C-B-K-T-D-C-M. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypers kamen and my amazing guest today, Dr. Robert Lustig and Dr. Moran Cerf, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TokiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.